Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Thank you, Mr. Intro, Outro. Well, Mark, I'll tell you what, I'm glad I made it um, today, tonight for this um, recording. And our date is the week ending of March the 16th, 2018. And it may sound like I'm a little bit... I'm a little bit under the weather, Mark, because I have the man flu. I have the man flu, Mark. You must be so, so sick, you poor bastard. I am so sick, and yet nobody in the family has any sympathy at all, Mark. I was in bed all day yesterday. I only got out for half an hour yesterday, and and you know me. I don't like to um, mess around, and I'm always up and about, but there I was with my pounding headache in bed. Um, moaning and carrying on, and um, and was 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 Annie um, bringing you, you know, <laughs> cups of cups of lemon juice infused with manica honey? No, all, all that happened was um, every time I fell asleep, I, I I I got an extra jab in the ribs because I I, I started snoring even more than I usually snore, and um, it woke me up again as soon as I fell asleep, and then I had to roll over to the other side. Um, so I just got a jab in the ribs and 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 a, and a voice saying, "Please face the other way. I don't want to get sick." and don't touch me uh, was the <laughs> other comment. So there you go. But I am feeling much better today, even though um, I probably sound very nasally and very um, 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 very um, clogged up, and I'm sure I'll be putting my microphone on mute several times to do some severe coughing bouts. But, you know, you know what it's like, Mark? We, we soldier, soldier along and soldier through all of this, and nothing stops the podcast, Mark. Um, the weekly podcast will continue, um, and I even, think it's important that it continues. Exactly, and I think it continues, especially since we got some we got some feedback this week, didn't we? We got we two. Um, we got. We had an amazing email from a vet nurse, Elizabeth, from. Let's look at the email here. Where is she, Mark? She's in She's Tamworth, in South Wales. Um, and I think I might um, throw over to you to read her little um, email she sent us, Mark, while I put myself on mute and make a big cough and a splatter <laughs> into my handkerchief. Well, I'm just – it's an interesting thing, Brendan, because um, you've got uh, like five – you're like one of those, um, um, uh, you know, master criminals with five screens all up at once, and here I am flicking through tabs trying to find the um, the uh, particular bit of um, exciting news, uh, and wouldn't you know it, I just oh, well, can't lay my hands it. on it. I will. I will read it. You do the reading. Maybe if you you try and search for um, our other exciting news about a member, if you can find that one, then you can read that one out. But um, yeah, the email was from a vet nurse called um, Elizabeth, and uh, reading through her email. Hi, Elizabeth. Um, I'm a vet nurse student in Tamworth, New South Wales, Australia, and have been enjoying listening to your podcast. I'm up to episode 18. Oh, well done, Elizabeth. Episode 19 is fantastic. I think that's one of the bunny ones, so you must get on to that one very soon. It's a highlight of my day to see Barry the Galar and his sometimes his gal stop by Granny's Bird Feeder, which is usually mobbed by pigeons. A small amount of seed is added each day. However, the usual two galahs, two rosellas, and one sulfur-crested cockatoo has de- have deserted the area since Granny has a stint in hospital. At my place, the sheep, water tubs attract birds. Um, and I couldn't quite – I was trying to sort of read between the lines what, um, what Elizabeth was saying, but I think what she's been doing is observing all these birds that were um, um, sitting outside. And I have a bit of a feeling that she lives on a – or works in a um, – practice outside Tamworth, which is a fairly country um, sort of town, isn't it, mate? You'll have a bit of an idea on what number of people live in Tamworth, um, and it's a pretty rural area. How how far is Tamworth from the nearest big city away from Tamworth, Mark? 
Well, I think it's about um, four hours drive um, north by northwest from us. Um, so it's uh, it's a um, it is a, a rural centre, um, and um, I I can't tell you the population, but I can tell you that it has. Um, I think it has five veterinary clinics, so um, that might give you an idea of how big it is. Um, and uh, and there's a there's an excellent um, uh, centre there, um, and they do a marvellous job of training a lot of the uh, the uh, vet nurses, the support personnel, and um, and uh, I'm sure that's where Elizabeth probably is doing um, her course. Um, and look, I think it's the interesting thing is that she's um, observing the, the heading of her email um, in amongst the wild things, getting amongst the wild things. Um, it's an aspiration we should all go for. And even just um, looking at where she is and seeing the birds come to the waters and um, the food, um, I think uh, we all should um, be listening to what's going on outside and paying attention when those animals come around just as Elizabeth does. And thanks very much for the email elizabeth and i think i've worked out what she was saying about granny and that um she must be um staying with granny um perhaps while she's doing her vet nursing course um you have to send us a follow-up email elizabeth and um granny puts out a little bit of um a little bit of um seed or grain um in the bird feeder and um, we've had a bit of a chat about the pros and cons of putting out food for wild birds but she's attracting galahs and rosellas and sulfur crested cockatoos um and also pigeons and jumping in there and trying to eat um but granny's been in hospital by the look of things and, and once granny um went into hospital um the usual two glass two rosellas and the one sulfur crested cockatoo aren't, aren't dropping by the bird feeder anymore since granny got into hospital so let's hope granny's back again um back from hospital and that the birds are um, back at that bird feeder and perhaps it might be an idea to put some some other types of food items in that bird feeder mark what would you suggest people do and I know we have discussed this at length in a previous episode. What do you suggest people put in bird feeders, if anything at all? That's a very good question. I reckon um, that the the best thing to do um, is when to put it in rather than what to put it in. Lots of people would put um, high quality seed or pellets. Um, I think try and avoid the the um, you know wild bird mixes they tend to be uh, fairly unhealthy mixes, um, relatively cheap seeds. So um, a high quality budgerigar mix or um, one of the pelleted foods. But the key thing to making sure that it stays uh, in a situation that doesn't um, trouble the birds, that doesn't uh, give them health issues, is to do it irregularly. So I think. Well, I hope um, uh, Elizabeth's grandmother is not in any trouble in. Uh, hospital and is back shortly um, and I'm sure the birds will return shortly after I think it is a good thing that um, that uh, uh, she um, that there is a break for the birds between the time that they um, that uh, that they get food I think once they get dependent on it that's when things start to go south um, so uh, intermittent but yeah. good quality intermittent good. Good. Well, great to hear from you, Elizabeth. And you have some very exciting news, Mark, about um, our second <laughs> contact. Haven't you? I do indeed. Um, uh, we received um, uh, a wonderful message um, from a someone who I, uh, you know, uh, consider a, f- a personal friend who um, is a regular listener to the podcast um, by all accounts. Um, I'm still searching for the email and I'm going from um, memory here. Um, but um, the wonderful uh, Dr. Nicole Mellum, who uh, worked with us for a while at Sugarloaf and now is one of the vets who works at Edgeworth Animal Medical Centre nearby, um, she is, in fact, uh, has taken a very prestigious honour from uh, our podcast. Um, she is our first patron. Um, it's. Uh, I know you've been working hard at this, Brendan. You've been plugging away. You've been... Um, uh, regularly touting uh, the uh, the um, 
Patreon uh, uh, page on our podcast. And finally, it's come to fruition. We have um, a bug, our first bug, our first patron, and um, and Wong, Nicole's name will long live uh, celebrated as um, the first one to support the uh, Brendan and Mark endeavour. And for those who, who don't know what the hell we're talking <laughs> about, um, if, if, if people want to help um, support us to help pay for our costs of producing the podcast, um, then you can go to our website, vetgurus.com, and it will have a link to the Patreon website where for anything from $1 up to what have we got for our biggest one, which is a guru. You can become a guru. We've got different names for all our different rewards. Um which the guru one is $50, um, you can become a patron and help support supporters. And, yeah, the first, um, the lowest rank, but that's still probably our most important rank because um, Nicole's our only patron so far. Thank you, Nicole, is a bug. And a bug uh, is $1 um, support for our um, for support. That will go a long way, Mark, a very long way to help support. It all helps, um, Brendan. It all helps. And did, 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 I meant to mention oh, – did you know that um, that uh, Nicole had to battle with the children? She listens to us as she drives them to school, and uh, and um, and they've been they're a little bit disapproving of our um, podcast, and they have other things to listen to. But Nicole persists and listens, so we're really glad for any support, and it will all add up, Brendan. That's right. And, um, yeah, as you mentioned at the start, Nicole will go down as our very first patron. So thank you very much, Nicole. So there we go. So um, if you want to get a shout-out on the program, then, yeah, send us an email. We'll say hello to you regardless. But even better, if you can support us and help cover some of our costs, that would be fantastic. And that's our plug for the day. Um, Mark, I think we should jump into some news. Um, or should we talk about news or our, rev- our double, no, we'll double to- review? We have let's go news. Yep. Okay, so I think the first news item um, is something that I will talk about, which is please don't feed the monkeys. And this is from one of our favourite um, news sources, and that is the Mother Nature Network. And it is from Florida. Officials worry that Florida's macaques could spread herpes B virus. Uh, Sorry, monkeys of Florida, but your days of getting food from humans is officially over. And on February the 14th, um, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission outlined changes to the state's rules regarding the feeding of non-human primates, adding to the general prohibition rule regarding feeding certain wild animals in the state. And the ban includes the feeding of coyotes, foxes, raccoons, bears, pelicans and sandhill cranes. And the main concern was that um, even though monkeys aren't native to Florida, that hasn't stopped them thriving in the state. Um, And there's three species of wild monkeys that roam Florida. Um, And that is squirrel monkeys, vervet monkeys and rhesus macaques. And I think one of the species has an interest in um, past in Florida's, and that's a macaque monkey, which was introduced to a small island off Florida as a tourist attraction that you could take a river cruise to visit these monkeys. And unbeknownst to the people who put them on the island, they didn't realise the monkeys were good swimmers, so they quickly swam off the island and and ended up on the, um, uh, on the mainland there and then managed to, to breed quite re- readily. And the main threat is that potentially uh, these monkeys could could harvest um, or, or, or have the herpes, v virus, herpes B virus, which is potentially fatal in humans, although... There is no macaque transmitted herpes B virus infection in humans that has been reported as far as I know. Um, So that's my news item from Florida, Mark. Please don't feed the monkeys. And I suppose it sort of folds in um, a little bit with what we're talking about, feeding wild birds and whether or not we should be encouraging um, the feeding of any wild animal in that we um, could end up causing more problems than we than we we think we are, even though we're getting to see the animals that we may not normally see because we're putting food out for them. So there we go. 
That is news item number one. So news item number two, Mark, is something completely different, and that is about uh, a mammal. It's about um, the six surprising facts about tapirs. Um, another wonderful article that uh, we've poached from the Mother Nature Network. Um, and also, it's um, I think that... Um, in the way of BuzzFeed's, you know, top 10 whatevers, um, this is going to be something that we um, we adapt to our own uh, little discussion a bit later on. So we're going to quickly power through six surprising facts about tapirs. Um, uh, the, one of the, fir- the first thing um, is that I love the word, um, the Thai word for tapir is som set, which... Um, it means uh, the mixture is finished, um, and that refers to much like the platypus. That the tapir seems to have bits of animals from everywhere. Um, that's not even the first fact. The first fact is tapirs are often called living fossils, <laughs> um, and uh, if they look like they do look like you know those um, the books I had when I was growing up that had prehistoric mammals, the the um, the, the megafauna uh, around the world, they often look like tapirs. Um, and uh, But the earliest actual versions of today's tapirs appeared in the early Eocene in North America, and uh, from there they've spread over all the other continents um, over the millennia, and now they uh, only survive in Central America, South America, and Southeast Asia. Um, they are, according to life science, the most primitive large mammals in the world. Um, they've been around for about 20 million years and have changed very little. The third, the second fact is that tapir calves are camouflaged, and we all know those beautiful pictures. And on the article, which you'll be able to find on our podcast uh, links, um, there's some gorgeous photos here of uh, particularly the baby tapirs, which have those lovely stripes which camouflage them. The third one is that they have a prehensile nose, much like elephants and most interestingly they uh they use it to grab food and manipulate things but uh they also use it as a snorkel much like elephants which leads us to surprising fact number four that they're exceptional swimmers um they uh, take to water to find additional forage and they uh they can actually walk underwater moving at a fairly good clip and that hunting the the foraging for plants in and around the water makes them critical curators of plants which is the penultimate fact Um, they are often referred to as the gardeners of the forest because they play a critical role in dispersing seeds and being south america's largest land mammal they move a lot of seed um, putting it in the front end carrying it around in the middle bit and dumping it out the back end at a new place (laughs) so um and the last fact, which, uh, you know, it's my bit of a downer, um, uh, and I don't know, when I'm talking about six surprising facts, this one really isn't that surprising. They're endangered. Um, there's four species, and all species are in desperate need of conservation. Um, they are listed, the Malayan mountain and Baird's tapir are listed as endangered um, an IUCN's red list, and the lowland tapir um, is vulnerable. Um, and there still is um, hunting of tapir in various parts of their range for meat. Um, and, of course, the old our old favourites have a t- fragmentation and encroachment um, and uh, approached by humans are critical factors that worsen their chance of survival. So um, there is six quick facts about tapirs, Brendan. I'm very surprised, Mark. I'm very surprised. Maybe they should uh, be bred in a zoo because that leads us to number article number three. Say hello to the first polar bear cub born in the UK in 25 years. And a white ball of fluffy history recently emerged at the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland's Highland Wildlife Park. The little one is the first polar bear 
cub to be born in the United Kingdom in 25 years. The cub was born in mid-December 2017 to mum, Victoria, and father, Arctos. But until now, the birth had only been confirmed by high-pitched noises coming from the den. Um, the thing I found interesting about this story, apart from being a good news story to, to contrast, the, again, your depressing um, story about endangered tapirs, Mark, is that uh, their method of breeding the polar bears in the zoo was, guess what, it's going back to what happens naturally. To more closely mirror the way polar bears live in the wild, the zoo has kept the male and female bears separate and as large as a normal enclosure, says Douglas Richardson, head of living collections at the park. Um, I think if I worked at that park, I'd like to be um, the head of dead collections at um, the park. Imagine that for a title, Mark. I reckon that would be that would be a fun title to have. I see dead things is what I would um, have on my badge there. But um, good on you, Douglas, for for making the enclosure more um, naturalistic for those um, for those um, polar bears. Um, Sun may wonder whether there is any point in breeding polar bears in zoos, and the question deserves a serious answer. Um, says Douglas. The change in Arctic climate, specifically the shortening of the ice season, coupled with the direct human pressures, is having a noticeably detrimental effect on the species that is likely to result in many of the wild subpopulations disappearing. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners, and I'm sure you have, Mark, too, have, have seen that that picture of those starving um, polar bears um, um, walking across the um, Arctic wastelands. Um, um, pretty um, dramatic um, um, film um, that um, you'll find early, easily if you just do a bit of an internet search. So there's my article, the Say Hello to the First Polar ba- Bear Cub Born in the UK in 25 Years, and it's got a pretty cutesy um, photo there. And this is another um, article from the Mother Nature Network. Again, we're getting very... Um, Attached to the Mother Nature Network for our cute and cuddly and our little news grabs, aren't we, Mark? Thank they. And I think the. No, I was just going to say they do a great job of um, curating the sorts of topics that you and I are interested in talking about. I'm not embarrassed at all by um, uh, uh, plagiarising the the um, stories from the Mother Nature Network. In fact, I'm about to do it again. Well, what? <laughs> yes, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> so my um, next story, um, the last one of our news stories, is about, um, and it is like um, uh, I'm, I do feel I bring the tone of our conversations down with a little bit of depressing news each time we we uh, get together. Um, on the uh, the topic, I uh, the article I took a particular shine to was about uh, the vaquita, um, uh, Earth's tiniest porpoise, um, which uh, is well. it's uh, rapidly vanishing, critically endangered. The population has dropped um, so that uh, in by 92% from the mid to late nineties. And there's only uh, in 2000 and um, uh, in 2014, we're down to 160 and 16 uh, where 2017, there's probably 30 of them left. And, the conservationist Andrea Croster um, has uh, announced that um, uh, in early 2018, the population may be as low as 12 individual vaquitas, um, which is just like, you know, plot those points on a graph and you know where they're headed over the next two or three years. They're really tiny dolphins, porpoises, uh, Brendan. They're only about uh, four feet long and they weigh about uh, uh, 35 or 40 kilos. Um, They're the world's smallest marine mammal um, and they're by far the most endangered. Um, And as is the case with many of our other discussions, this species is a victim of poaching and international wildlife trafficking, but with it, very strange yes. twist. Um, it is not the object of the poaching or international wildlife trafficking. Um, in the uh, um, particular part of the world, the um, Gulf of Mexico, um, where uh, our 12 tiny dolphins survive, um, there is a fish, the Totoba, um, that poses no direct danger to the vaquitas, um, but it does have black market value in China, where the swim bladder, like so many odd bits of anatomy from around the world, is presumed to have medicinal properties. And so um, 
There is a whole lot of poaching with gillnets um, in the Gulf of Mexico uh, and obviously um, uh, the drug cartels in um, that part of the world get a, a play a role in cultivating shrimp fishes to lay out the gill nets that'll uh, catch the fish and um, the vaquitas are an unfortunate um, an unfortunate uh, bycatch unfortunately and yes. uh, and and geez just to have 12 of them left is heartbreaking but Brendan the Mexican government is not just like resting on its laurels. Um, they're spending a significant amount of money to try and um, uh, set up, uh, you know, uh, safe uh, areas for this species conservation. $50 million to date, and they've got $70 million on the table um, to, uh, to try and set things up so that this uh, tiny dolphin can survive. I was particularly interested in the article telling us the story of how um, research scientists had uh, had caught one of the vaquita calves to do some research on, and and uh, they were a bit disappointed they couldn't keep it. They had to let it go. They were thinking that it might be, uh, you know, the way to save the animal would be to uh, set up captive breeding populations. Um, but uh, unfortunately, the next capture went much worse, and a mature female was captured in just. Uh, four months ago um, for the same, you know, purposes to get some biometric data. Um, But uh, once she was caught, she began to show signs of stress and she died in the process of her release. So, um, and I know that, um, you know, it's it's very important that we collect data on these animals, but sometimes I think uh, uh, our interventions, well, in this instance, it's a classic example. They can be as bad as um, uh, the, the dangerous, um, threatening effects of um, illegal fishing of the Totoaba. So I don't know what's going to happen, Brendan. I don't, I, I'm, part of me is, is, um, uh, is screaming for the, the chance that, um, that these 12 little dolphins could uh, hang on and start to rebuild the population um, but I just I just have this depressing feeling that um, about uh, three or four years from now we'll be reading an article on the Mother Nature Network which tells us that this species is no longer around. Yes and even more depressing in that nobody is actually trying to kill it um, as you mentioned and that this species may die out accidentally on poipus as the um, one-liner says in the article. <laughs> you just I can't love. help yourself. <laughs> I, I love that line. Yes, so thanks for another depressing news report, Mark. You're, you're, you, you, you present one every week at least, don't you? Um, usually more than one every week, but um, that's what we deal with when we're dealing with um, um, species that are endangered, aren't they? So I think we should, gee, look, we're almost half an hour in and we've only just finished the newsroom. We've got two very important things to do, Mark, actually three now that I think of it. <laughs> One is our review for the week, which is a, a double review, which we could end up talking <laughs> on more than half an hour, but so we'll just have to limit ourselves. And then our topic for the week, which for those of you who didn't um, twig from the title of our uh podcast this week it is about fun facts about guinea pigs is our main topic for the week so hang in there if you want to fast forward past our little double review that we'll be starting in a minute but just before we do that i just wanted to do a shout out to a a group of uh, i like to do a shout out every week or two of some of our our countries where our subscribers are from and the one i want to shout out this week is to our friends in You'd probably never guess, Mark, because you've got to choose from 33 of them these days. Um, it is our friends from Sweden, and we have a reasonable number of subscribers from Sweden. So hello to everybody in Sweden. And um, it is another place I'd like to get to, Mark, that I haven't been to yet. So um, one day I might get out to Sweden. And, yeah, we'll um, if we do both happen to be there at the same time, we'll obviously do a, a podcast from Sweden when we're there. So hello to our listeners in Sweden. So our review this week is a double review, isn't it, Mark? So do you want to introduce what our review is about? It is a non-veterinary topic. And and spoiler alert here, we're going to actually talk about 
to films. And if you have not viewed these films and you want to view these films, you may wish to fast forward because we may give away some plot spoilers um, for the film. So get stuck into it, Mark. Let's talk about everything. Well, um, it's been such a – you saw um, one of these movies earlier in the year and you um, uh, uh, took me to – um, to a comparison with several other movies that were around at the time, and you were wrapped in um, the one that you'd seen. And I know, despite your um, suffering at the hands of one of the fiercest illnesses known to man yesterday, um, you uh, managed to put it on the uh, um, the uh, Blu-ray and fire it up again and, and just do a, a second viewing. Um, and, of course, we're talking about uh, Blade Runner 2049 and uh, we're looking at it in, in terms of um, the original Blade Runner. Um, so uh, I, um, after your outstanding recommendation earlier in the year, I um, I did take the, uh, the time myself to um, spend some time and uh, have a look at the movie. And, um, and I, I was pretty impressed. I was uh, very, very prepared to uh, um, being a particular fan of the original 1982 movie. Um, I, and, you know, um, in the way of sequels, I almost invariably am uh, um, disappointed at the uh, the follow-on, at the reinterpretation. Um, but uh, I must admit that um, uh, the uh, the new version of Blade Runner, um, I was very pleased to see that it uh, uh, paid due homage to the original, that it uh, maintained a certain standard, but struck out in certain ways on its own, and uh, and um, and cut some new ground. And uh, while it wasn't perfect, you could never um, hope to take something uh, of the stature of the first movie and create a sequel, and uh, um, you know, be of the same standard. But it aspired to be, and gotten very, very close, in my opinion. What did you think, Brendan? I very much enjoyed uh, the Blade Runner 2049. And what I did, uh, yeah, I did go and see it in the cinema um, when it was first released. And then just, yeah, three days ago or last week, actually, I watched the original Blade Runner. And I was, I'm still amazed that this, yeah, this is a film that was made in 1982. So it's what, 35, 36 years old. And it still looked fantastic. And to, to, for a science fiction film to still show, um, to still look great, and and um, uh, the the special effects were still amazing, considering that it's a thirty six year old film, was um, fantastic. And I still must admit that the original Blade Runner is one of my favourite films of all time, if not the most favourite film of all time as far as I'm concerned um, regarding science fiction anyway and then I watched yeah 2049 yesterday um, when I awoke from my um, man flu and it is a long film and I and I know that it, a lot of people do not like it at all um, they find it very slow and very um, plodding and and if I remember correctly, it's about two hours, 45 minutes, something like that. Uh, and this was my second viewing of it, and I loved it. I still loved it, and I thought it um, was a great film. And it, and it fit in beautifully looking back after having just watched the, the first film um, several days before. It, it, it um, dovetailed really nicely. And interestingly enough, on the, on the Blu-ray DVD that I purchased, it had – three separate little short films or they weren't even films they were only just five minutes sort of uh, little little um, episodes that tried to link the end of one film with with the start of the 2049 and explain the the the, the period in between the two films and and that even made it um, made it even better um, but even if you don't watch those um, that's very poor English what I just said there um, I still thoroughly enjoyed it but I'm still confused Mark and in, in the the age-old question is with with um, the, everybody who um, knows about Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 is the age-old question is is Decker an android or not what is your um, opinion of that is Harrison Ford's character a human? Well, it's amazing that you ask me that because I don't think it's a, a. He clearly is. 
he uh, I am I, um, I I ever since I saw the first one I've always assumed that uh, that uh, that one of the prime ironies of the film was that um, that he was a blade runner but now that you ask me um, I I, uh, I have no um, no particular evidence to say that uh, um, that he was I just had always assumed that he was well the 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 backstory to that is when the original book is it's based on a, a book by a very famous science fictional author Philip K. Dick, and the book's called "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" And in the book, he, he I'm pretty sure he definitively states he isn't um, the character in there isn't an android, and he is human, the original Blade Runner. Uh, but but they've left it up to interpretation with the original and, and and even the follow-up one because here's the spoiler alert in Blade Runner 2049. Uh, the One of the key plot lines is that um, one of the androids managed manages to give birth and um, it is an offspring of Harrison Ford's character. So so the two, two important potential aspects there are does it mean that a human is mated with an android and produces an offspring which would be um, unprecedented and that's why they wanted to potentially wipe them out even even more so or is if he is an android then it's two androids mated and producing another android that's even more revolutionary there so you better answer that Uh home mark um so it's um that they've left it. They've left it up in the open. I, I've always thought, no, I'd, I'd, I'd like to think he wasn't an android. But there are certain bits in both films that indicate maybe he was an android. And I think the main part in the first film was that uh, when the final fight scene at the end, when he's fighting, um, oh, I'm trying to remember the name, Roy, Roy, um, which is Rutger Hauer. Um, yeah. Uh, and they have a big fight that he's sustaining injuries that only an android and a human wouldn't be able to sustain there. But um, I've always actually tended to, to 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 lean towards the fact he's human and not an android. So that's that's interesting. We're um, you know we're we're on opposite spectrums of whether or not he's an android or not. But having said that, that's something we could debate about all night. And we're here to do a veterinary podcast, Mark, and not just a film review podcast. Although maybe we should do that as well. So, what's your score for Blade Runner two thousand and forty nine? Well, pre. Uh, uh, um provide a, a preliminary score because I'm like you. I um, love the first Blade Runner and I would have given that a 10 out of 10. Um, but um, 2049 comes in at 9.2. 9.2. Well, that's a pretty damn good score, Mark. I think um, I will have to give it 9.5 because I think it's an excellent film. And I viewed the making of as well and the fascinating thing with that is that most of the sets were physically made, so they were uh, models rather than just CGI sets, and I think it really shows with a with a film like this. And I just love the score as well. That the music in it was was there amazing. Was, there was one part, of, and there was one that, part of the movie that really grated on me, um, and I'd be really interested in your opinion on it. Um, the uh, Jared Leto's character, the um, the, the one who runs the corporation who's trying to uh, identify the you know how they can breed the rep, the uh, um, the synthetic humans the replicants more quickly um, what, what he seemed to be that just was a waste that um, whole storyline it just seemed to be um, uh, I don't know unnecessary um, he um, came in he did some uh, um, uh, um, a little bit of excessive, you know, the sets that he was in were a little bit excessive and dr- overly dramatic and didn't seem to me to fit with the rest of the movie. What did you think of Jared Leto's role? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that was potentially one of the weaker parts of the film uh, with him in it, but uh, I, 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 I probably wasn't as harsh as what... What do you think? My, my thoughts on him? Um, yeah, he's he was sort of the the stereotypical evil person, wasn't he? I suppose is what they were portraying him of uh, as, and 
comparing it with the first film, I think it was difficult to find a, a character as good as the original. Um, uh, Tyrell, um, um, the, the owner of the original replicants, or the, the man who produced the original replicants, and he was the one who Wallace was his name, wasn't it? Um, in in the second one, that's who you're talking about. Is that correct? Um, yeah, and he, he's the one who um, purchased the Tyrell Corporation and 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 then made the new series of replicants. Um, yeah, no, I, th- I thought it was okay. I thought it was okay, but yeah, it may be a bit of a weak point. And I think the youngsters of these days will, will, may watch a film like two thousand and forty nine and think, "Gee, this is boring. It's so slow." But I found it fascinating, and I just love the the sort of panoramic aspect of it and um, the the amaz- amazing visuals and sound of it. So I loved it. So there you go. Good work. My thoughts on it. Let's get on to our main topic before everybody um, switches mm-hmm. off and doesn't listen to us ever again, and we don't never want that to happen, and that is 10 top tips f- and tricks for about guinea pigs. So let's start off with number one, Mark. Number what is number one? one? Is, um, uh, I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> I'm just with me. You go, Joe. I knew I'd put you on. You do number one. You're, Number one is they. they oh, of course, scream. I was going. I had that. Um, so, <laughs> go on. Yes, they scream. They scream at a high pitch. Yes, they scream. So guinea pigs scream. Guinea pigs scream. If you look at them, guinea pigs scream. If you touch them, guinea pigs scream. If you try, try and do a skin scraping on them. So, the important thing to remember there is warn the clients. And I, I say it half jokingly to virtually every new client that comes in with a guinea pig. I tell them that if if um, if I look at them at, um, sideways, I'll probably scream um, because they're such fragile little things and they like to vocalise. So I always warn the clients that their animal may scream and they have a bit of a chuckle. And then when they do scream, when I try and pick them up and touch them, then they're not jumping out of their skins and, and blaming the vet for hurting their guinea pigs. So that's number one. Number two, Mark? Impaction in entire male guinea pigs. They are very, uh, I expect it to be a very, very uncomfortable situation where um, the uh, um, and I suppose it's uh, there, there'll be a proper anatomical name for that area around the anus, which tends to dilate, um, particularly as they get the butt end, butt end. particularly as they get older, um, and markedly more so uh, when um, testosterone is a big part of their life. And so, um, this is one of the main reasons I think that we should actively um, uh, seek to dissex uh, young boars because it's highly likely they will end up with this sort of problem um, and it's not something that's easy to treat uh, uh, they uh, um, they can you can apply Brendan's toothpaste technique in some instances repeatedly to get the uh, impacted fecal material out but uh, often it's just a problem that uh, compromises their quality of life and uh, and we wish they'd been castrated when they were young Yes, number three, ovarian cysts. So guinea pig females, if they are not bred, they're high chance of developing ovarian cysts. And depending on what what studies you read, Mark, I think one of them said 93%. It may have been, have been more than that chance of developing ovarian cysts as they get older. So desex those female guinea pigs, even if it's a breeding female, get her fixed when she's uh, finished popping out a few guinea pigs. So that leads us on to number four, which is um, an excellent little uh, – um, has like quite a big story to it. They um, – don't, in fact, come from Guinea. And the whole story about the origins of the uh, first part of their name um, is a little bit shrouded in um, mystery. I long thought that um, um, because they were very, very popular pets and uh, um, and they were, uh, um, you know, in Elizabethan times, they were quite the uh, um, prize. I thought that it might have been because that's how much they cost, but Brendan quite firmly disavowed me of that um, misapprehension, and um, and and so it uh, it comes to pass that no one really knows where the guinea comes from. Maybe it's because in Elizabethan times, pretty much everything that was a little bit exotic uh, came with the moniker that it probably came from Guinea, or maybe it was Guyana, a miss 
pronunciation of one of the Central American countries where they do actually come from. That leads. Yes. And there's lots of theories. There's probably half a dozen theories, sorry, Mark, for butting in there. And it, the, probably the best summary for that is to just look on the Wikipedia um, reference to guinea pigs and you'll see a couple of paragraphs about uh, the potential origin of the word guinea in guinea pig. And even with that uh, description, which has references there, it um, doesn't really come out with a definitive answer. So number five of our top 10 tips and tricks is if it fits, it's itchy. What does that mean? Is Especially for those veterinary nurses or, or technicians out there, if your practice is seeing guinea pigs, you will receive a phone call from a client saying, my guinea pig is ep- epileptic. It is having a fit. It is having a seizure. And the thing to always remember, and we have mentioned it in one of our previous podcasts about ectoparasites in mammals, is it's almost certainly guinea pig that has mange, Mark, and it is fitting because it is so pruritic. So that is number five. It, if, it, if it fits, it's probably itchy. Number, number six, Number six Mark, is, is that uh, if you have uh, trouble telling what age your guinea pig is, have a look at its toes, and if they are gnarly, that indicates we have an old guinea pig. Um, it's a very common thing for the ligaments and tendons of the toes to not be quite as strong as they get old, and uh, the toes will grow this long, curly uh, spiral pattern, and that is a characteristic of guinea pigs of a very decent age. So if you see gnarly toes, old pig. I was just looking at my um, toenails then, Mark, and um, um, I found that quite offensive, what you just said there, Mark. (laughs) Number seven is diabetes, and that we do see diabetes in guinea pigs. And I'd be, as an aside, we might stop for a second here, and I'd just be interested if if you have diagnosed many guinea pigs with diabetes in your practice, Mark, because I've seen two or three um, in the last six months in my practice, and as far as I know, we just don't know the whole um, process of why and how um, diabetes occurs in guinea pigs, and also how to um, how to control it. Um, with the two guinea pigs at present that we have with diabetes in in my practice, or the two patients that we have on our books, uh, we aren't using. Uh, we have not put them on insulin uh, because the concern is that it can be quite dangerous to put guinea pigs on insulin. So I'd be interested in your thoughts, Marks. Have you diagnosed many guinea pigs or any guinea pigs with diabetes and what are you well, we trying to do to one, control it? And unfortunately it passed away shortly after we made the diagnosis. So um, we haven't as yet been in a situation to try and treat with anything. Um, I have um, read those reports which suggest the use of insulin may well be uh, cause more trouble than it solves. So I'll be very interested for us to collect a series of cases and start to piece together this mystery. Um, this re- it's relatively new, as you know, it's not a, um, a, doesn't have a long history. It's only been something that's been recognised more recently as people have gotten better, I suppose, at drawing blood and running the tests. So uh, I look forward to your article and paper at the next UPAV conference, Brendan. Uh, good. So, yes, if you don't look, you're not going to find it, are you? So we need to start doing regular um, blood glucose levels on, on apparently healthy um, guinea pigs to start seeing what percentage of them do have diabetes sitting in the background. Number What's eight number is eight, a strange one. Um, we, we th- we're, wonder- we're wondering whether we're going to put this in, the palatal <laughs> ostium. Um, uh, it's a difficult concept to explain, but essentially the soft palate of guinea pigs uh, doesn't uh, sort of flop around in the breeze. It reaches down and touches the base of the mouth and creates a very small round opening in the middle, which is the ostium, which connects the uh, oral cavity with the oropharynx. Um, and this uh, palatal ostium makes it very difficult to... In- it's one of the things that makes it very difficult to intubate guinea pigs. And... Uh, and it's my excuse for intubating very few of them. <laughs> yes. 
Same with me. There is an interesting article that has been published a fair few years ago. I don't know whether you saw it, Mark, um, that was putting a guinea pig on its back and placing a modified three mil syringe case into the mouth and towards the back of the throat to supposedly um, make Speculum. a nice uh, line in order to, to speculum to then intubate them blindly um, through that three I have mil seen syringe. It Have you seen that post, But in the usual way of these things, it doesn't work for me as well as it does in the paper. It didn't work for me either. Yeah, it didn't work for me at all. Uh, some great line drawings in the paper showing that it should work, but, um, yeah, I couldn't get it to work at all. So that was not a good day at the office when I was trying to do that. Um, number nine is calcium, Eurolis. So for those who don't know, the Eurolis or the um, stones or crystals that we see in the urinary tract of guinea pigs are invariably calcium-based Eurolis. Number 10, the last one. Number 10, Mark, you can take the last one. to this were very widespread as Elizabethan pets. They were very popular um, uh, in the Elizabethan periods. And, in fact, um, they, uh, um, they were – that's the time that many specialised breeds with uh, varying coat colours and textures and lengths were um, began to be developed. And it's only much later um, that uh, these animals began to be used in experiments. And so the epithet guinea pig as a test subject didn't come around until well after their popularity as Elizabethan pets. Yes. So if your name's not Elizabeth, <laughs> what pet do you have then, well, Mark? You, That's you, what you, I want you, to um, Get one of those collars to start with. Oh, you don't if you're named Elizabeth. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> yes, and there is a very um, famous painting or portrait of um, three Elizabethan children with um, holding guinea pigs uh, and that's in the um, National Portrait Gallery in London that I've used in one of the talks that I gave about um, trivial facts that you don't need to know about guinea pigs uh, and I'm sure you're at um, the talk that I gave that Mark because I remember you sat in the front row fast asleep during my talk there Mark so there you go so there we go 10 top tips and tricks about guinea pigs and we're hoping to produce a whole series about 10 top tricks and tricks Thanks on different types of animals and the outro ma man is about to cut me off Don't so we'll to talk to you all next week where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time 